0: Well, greetings to all of you, my friends, all of you at 95th Street Campus. Good morning. And all of you here, good morning. Boy, the older brother's a little ticked, wouldn't you say? Woo! Woo, woo, woo. Hey, there's another perspective to consider. This three-week series has been looking at the same parable from different vantage points. And we've been learning different things about grace from each vantage point. Week one, we looked through the eyes of the Father, remember that? And as we tried to see through the eyes of the Father, this rebellious son coming home, we, we understood grace a little better. We discovered that grace is not like normal favor and love. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is not born out of the worthiness of the beloved, but out of the character of the lover. It's love of a different kind, from a different planet, And then last week, week two, we looked through the perspective of the son, the the rebellious son that came home and just enjoyed the father lavishing undeserved love on him. And we said, we need to be that boy receiving the undeserved love of the father. We talked about learning to bask in God's delight in us. But we're not just to be recipients of grace. We're also to be givers of grace. And that's week three, this week, final week of this series. And here we learn from the perspective of the older son, the the brother, who didn't rebel, but observed the father lavishing grace on his evil brother. And uh, he wasn't real thrilled about it. He failed to give grace like the dad, You ready? You know, in this study of grace, I want to kind of dedicate this particular message to a dear friend of mine, Christy Rudder. Christy was a uh, consultant, actually, of our church, but I've known her much more long than that. It's it's been a tough couple weeks for me. As you remember, last week I shared I lost my uh, grandmother, and my wife and I lost our dear friend Christy after a four-year battle with breast cancer. Uh, Chrissy was an absolutely amazing woman. Let, let me tell you how I got to know her, and it will reveal just her propensity to give grace to others. All right? Chrissy and I went to Wheaton College together, but I really didn't know her until uh, just. The last three weeks I was at Wheaton, she actually dated my college roommate for the last three weeks that I was at Wheaton, and at the end of those three weeks, uh, they had to depart by necessity. My roommate and I moved up to northern Wisconsin to work at a camp for the summer, and Christy went on a missions, a summer-long missions trip to uh, Bolivia. They didn't do a good job of clarifying the nature of their relationship after those three weeks of dating. My roommate kind of assumed that it was over. In fact, as soon as he got to camp, he met a girl who turned out to be his wife. Christy assumed that they had a relationship, and as a result, from Bolivia, she was writing love letters all summer. This is before internet, you know, where you could communicate quickly, and so these love letters kept coming Uh, snail mail love letters. And because my roommate was on to another girl, he never read any of these letters. I read every one of them. So I, (laughs) I would ask him, hey, I see you got some mail. Did you get any more letters from Christy? And he's like, Griffin, you want them? I'm like, well, if you're okay with it. He's like, here, you know, and I read them and I reread them. And, uh, here. I call them love letters, not because she loved my roommate she didn 't I call them love letters because she was in love with Jesus Christ, and her letters describe that affection. I was profoundly impacted by these letters. I would read and she would would describe her awareness of God's overwhelming affection for her, her growing affection for him, and then her passionate love for the people she was ministering to in Bolivia. And I was getting a window into a heart so different from my own. In fact, uh, here's what happened. I I just poured into these letters, read them, reread them, and then... a year and a half later, okay, I didn't see Christy or have any contact with her during that time. I was at Wheaton College for a homecoming event. I was at the football, homecoming football game, and I bumped into her in the stands. And I'm like, Christy, and she was like, Jeff Griffin? And I'm like, that's right, good to see you. Tell me what's up. She said, well, I'm graduating early in December, and I want to get into student ministry, working with high school students. I said, Christy, I'm a youth pastor right now. And I remember putting my hands on her shoulders, and I said, please, come work with me. Be my partner in ministry. She's like, Jeff Griffin, are you offering me a job? And I said, I am. She goes, you barely know me. And I said, I know you better than you think I know you. <laughs> and I had to confess to her that I had read all of these letters. And As I was reading Christy's letters describing this uncontrollable love she had for all of these people she was ministering to, I noticed how different that was from my own heart at that time. At that time, again, I was uh, working at camp and I had come to camp with this this naive expectation that I was going to love these campers like they've never felt love before. And you know what I found out about myself? I found that it was very easy for me to love some of them and not so much some of them. There were some of them that were just precious kids, you know, just good hearts, respectful, obedient, delightful. And I just, oh, I love them. There are a bunch of kids who are not so. They were ornery, evil. They were, oh, they were just brats and I just discovered I have no affection for them in my heart. Why? Because I was doing love the old-fashioned way, the earthly way, and that is that if you deserve it, you'll receive it, but if you don't draw it out of me, you ain't going to get none. And Chrissy, on the other hand, had a dynamic of a divine type going on in her heart where this love that's like grace, this unmerited favor was flowing out of her. And at that time in my life, I knew very little of that dynamic. Well, that's the dynamic that we're going to study, and let's do that. We're going to turn back to Luke 15. Let me just remind you of the context in case you're new to our series this week, or maybe you slept through the first couple of weeks, and a reminder is helpful. So there was a boy, and he said to his dad, Dad, tired of waiting for you to die. Give me my inheritance now because I believe life apart from you and this family would be better. And he took the inheritance and he went off to a big city. And for a time, I'm sure it was great, he was partying and spending money lavishly and winning friends as a result. But the money ran out and the friends left him. And he eventually found himself penniless, starving and miserable, Life apart from the father turned out to be a little less than he had hoped. And in his desperation, a thought of maybe going back to dad and trying to get a job came to his mind. So he tried it. And oh, the glorious scene where the boy gets to the end of the driveway and the dad sees him and Jesus says, The dad took off running down the road. And the boy's like, but the dad grabbed him and hugged him and kissed him and said, my son, my son, servants bring my best robe and put it on him. Put sandals on his feet and a ring on his finger and let's have a celebration of the greatest sword. In fact, kill the fatted calf. Spare no expense. We are going to party because the boy I love lavish grace. Well, we get to the older brothers. This rebel kid has got an older brother who's not a rebel, at least outwardly. Let's see his response, shall we? If you care to read in the Bibles on the seat back, you'll find, and 95th Street as well, you'll find on page 1048, Luke 15, starting at verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, presumably working. When he came near the house, he heard music, and then he saw dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him, What was going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father, believe it or not, has killed the fattened calf because he came back safe and sound the older brother became angry and he refused to go in and be a part of this celebration. So his father went out to him and pleaded with him. Isn't this interesting? Can you imagine this dynamic? Maybe it was the servant who had this discussion with the older brother who came to the father and said, Hey, uh, your other son, he came... Home and he saw what's going on. I kind of explained it to him and invited him, thinking that he was gonna want to have your heart on the matter. He doesn't have your heart on the matter. He thinks this is all really inappropriate and he refuses to be a part of it. And so the dad goes out to him and says, Son, come on. Look at how the older brother, the older brother, responds. He says in verse 29. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I have been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders. And yet you never gave me even a young goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, notice how it refers to his brother, this son of yours, when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, when he comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? Verse 31, My son, the father said, Listen, you are always with me, and everything that I have is yours. But we had to celebrate. We had to be glad because this brother of yours was dead. But look, he's alive again. He was lost. And he's found. Isn't that interesting? How different these two hearts are. The father's heart is one to lavish unmerited favor. The older brother's heart Not inclined to lavish unmerited favor on this bum. Now, you say, but what about this final speech? Did that persuade the older brother to change his heart and to engage in the party? We don't know. That's where the story ends. Jesus just kind of abruptly ends the parable without telling us the final disposition of the heart of the older brother. And I think he does that purposefully. Because Jesus doesn't want us so preoccupied with how did the older brother finally respond, but rather, how do you respond? And how do I respond? That's what we should be focusing on. That's the end of the story that matters. Because we are the older brother. You say, wait a minute, you said we're the younger brother. Who are we in this story? Well, actually, we're both. We can relate to the younger brother because we are the one who wandered far from God and lived in rebellion against him. And we are the one who comes home, if you're a Christian, and receives God's great grace. But we are also, like the older brother, called to give grace to undeserving people all around us. And so we're both. And the question as we take the perspective of the older brother is this, How good are you at just celebrating and loving people who don't deserve it at all? You know, one of the things I didn't tell you, and I feel inclined to tell you now, is the context of this parable. Who was this parable originally shared with? I haven't mentioned this at all. Do you know? Uh, To to find out, we got to go back. we got to go back to the very beginning of Luke 15 and allow me to read the first three verses. Now, the tax collectors. And when you think of tax collectors, if you don't know, in the ancient Roman world, they were like the mafia. They were organized crime. They were evil to the core. You couldn't think of a people type more despicable than the tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors and other sinners... We're all gathering around Jesus, gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers, those are like the professional good guys, the pastors. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man Jesus, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them? Then Jesus told them this parable. Jesus saw their response to his celebration of really messed up people. and He saw how put off they were by that, and he says, you guys don't get it, do you? You need a parable. In fact, you need three parables. If you read Luke 15, you discover there's the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son, the one we've been stuttering. Stuttering. I'm stuttering. (laughs) Studying. All three of these parables, though, have the same point, and that is, The heart of God is revealed. The heart of God for lost people. In each parable, it's described that the Father loves lost people far more than anyone would have expected. And when they come home, when they're found, the joy is unimaginable. And Jesus, he's got this reputation, Jesus does, of being the friend of sinners. (laughs) When Jesus came, he didn't love some and not others Jesus just lavished the most undeserving people with attention and affection and food and his presence. And he was mocked by the Pharisees as a result. The Pharisees were not unloving people. They loved their own really well. They loved some who deserved it. They didn't love others who didn't. And Jesus is saying to them, guys, Pharisees, you are so unlike the one you claim to worship. You don't understand the heart of the Father. If you did, you'd realize that your heart is diametrically opposite to his. And so Jesus shared these stories for them. And so in the first context, when the parable of the prodigal son was shared, it was these this older brother that the Pharisees, the original recipients, could relate to. They were the ones who didn't see the point of loving those who don't deserve it. And so... We got to ask, are we Pharisees? Are we more like the Pharisees or are we more like Jesus? Are we those who, like Jesus, have a reputation as being a friend of sinners? Or are we like the Pharisees, good at loving those who deserve it, not so good at loving those who don't? Ooh, I have a lot of conviction going on in me. Maybe you the same. Let's lean into this a bit, okay? Who do you struggle to love? Do you struggle to love people who irritate you? Maybe they talk too much. Maybe they don't talk at all. Do you struggle to love those who are more successful than you and are so arrogant as a result? Or do you struggle to love those who are much less successful than you? Do you struggle to love those that are of a different race or ethnicity? Do you struggle to love people of a different education or social class? Do you struggle to love those who don't like you? Maybe you're like, if you like me, I'll like you back. You don't like me, well, forget it then. Let's take it home, shall we? What I mean home, I mean all the way home, because this even applies to your spouse. On a good day, you say, oh, I love my spouse. Fantastic. Let's talk about a bad day, a day when they are irritating you. Oh, the sound of their voice is just driving you crazy. Undeserved love, unmerited love, love of another kind is needed in that moment to shower on your spouse, that love. How about your kids? You say, I love my kids. What about yesterday? Yesterday? You know, what about when they are so disobedient and so disrespectful and they're driving you crazy? You know, it's been said that kids need our love most when they deserve it least. And we need to step into this dynamic of divine love, of grace, of unmerited favor, even in the family. And so how do you do with loving people who are hard to love. My friend Christy was amazing at this. Can I share another Christy story? So she did come and work with me for three years in that student ministry, and it was during that time she was driving her car, and the car in front of her, she noticed, had a license plate that said atheist, a vanity plate that said atheist on it. And in her heart, Christy felt the Holy Spirit say, You got to talk to this person. So she followed them. (laughs) They turned right, she turned right. They sped up, she sped up. And it freaked the driver out. At a stop sign, he got out of the car and he was very defensive. He's like, Are you following me? And she said, Yes, I'm following you. I noticed your license plate, she said. And then she said, Wait a minute. She got out of her car. Are you Robert Sherman? And he's like, I am? She goes, you're famous. She said, I would be so honored if you'd have a cup of coffee with me. And that's how her friendship with Robert Sherman began. And you say, who's Robert Sherman? Maybe some of you remember, some of you don't. He actually passed away recently. Robert Sherman was kind of like enemy number one of Chicago Christians. He was a political activist, atheist, Christian hater. He sued many municipalities, suburbs, and through his suits, got them to stop putting Christmas decorations on public-owned properties. He had a campaign to get, in God we trust, out of our currency. And it wasn't just, you know, legalities he was striving for. He was driven by a bitter hatred of Christians. And he wouldn't deny it. Uh, I mean, he called Christians' names. They are stupid and gullible and just was inflammatory, venomous in his language. I couldn't stand him. I I didn't meet him, but I saw him on the news, and I read about him in articles, and I was like, oh, you old show you, buddy. And then Christie says, Jeff, he's my friend. Like, what do you mean he's your friend? What do you mean you laugh together and have coffee together and talk together? How do you do that? And she goes, Jeff, I see him through God's eyes. I'm like, wow. Robert Sherman said to Christy, Christy, do you know you are the only friend I have that is a Christian? And then he said, In fact, I think you're the only Christian I don't hate my friend blew me away with her capacity to love the most difficult people imaginable as far as loving them. So let's, let's move on. It begs the question, how, Christy? How, Jesus? How, father of the prodigal son? How do we enter into this, this miraculous heart dynamic where we begin to feel the undeserved, unmerited favor that God feels towards people. I want it, you may say, but how? And so I want to provide some uh, some direction based on a couple of verses that I already read. Let's go back to verses 31 and 32. This is what the father said to this angry older brother, okay? Because in it, I think there are three perspectives, three steps that we can take to move towards unmerited favor. The first one here, let's highlight this. Remember the father said... You are always with me and everything I have is yours. The father said, son, I want to talk about your brother. But before we get to him, let's talk about us. Because your words betrayed that you don't think I love you. Remember the older brother would say, you don't even give me a goat to celebrate with my friends. And so in this moment, the older son is doubting or questioning the father's affection for him. And the father says, before we go on to talk about your brother, we got to talk about us. I love you, boy. We uh, will always be together. He points to their relationship. He goes, we're tight. Come on, I'm yours. You're mine. We're in this together. And then he talks about his generosity. Everything I have is yours. Yeah, I've been outrageously generous to your brother, but I'm going to be outrageously generous to you too. It's all yours, bud. It's all yours. Why? does he start by focusing on their relationship? Here's why. We must receive the love of the Father before we have love to lavish on others. It says in 1 John, we love because God loved, first loved us. And for this older brother, he needs to bask in the love of the Father before he has anything to give his brother. It's kind of like a pitcher. Imagine a pitcher that's empty. And if you wanted to pour water into a glass with an empty pitcher, you're not going to get very far. But when water rushes in and fills the pitcher to overflowing, then you have something to give. We are that pitcher. And if our heart is empty, if we're not basking in God's affection for us, we don't have anything to give. But when we are pressing in to the encounter with God and we are basking in his unmerited, inexplicable affection for us, we are full and so full, in fact, that we can just pour undeserving love on others because we've received it so much. Another way to say this is you've got to master week two of this series, Receiving God's Love, before you can master week three, Giving Away the love. You need to be a receiver before you can be a giver. And so the first thing we need to do is get really good (laughs) at receiving the love God has for us. Second thing, I'm going to call it, what am I going to call it? Reconsider, reconsider. Reconsider who that one you're trying to love. Reconsider who they are in God's eyes. All right? What does the Father say? The father says, son, the way I see it is we had to celebrate. The way I see it, son, we had to be glad. There's no option here. I mean, come on, this kid is precious and he was lost, but he's found. And from the father's vantage point, this makes all the sense in the world. And he doesn't just say, I had to celebrate and I had to be glad. He said, we, he's hoping, come on, boy, you you see it like I see it, don't you? you're you're, you're understanding this. And the older son would have to say, no, Dad, I don't see it that way. To me, I just see a bum who deserves nothing. Well, you know what he needs to do? He needs to reconsider who his brother is from his father's perspective, and we need to do the same. That's what Christie says. When I see Robert Sherman, I look at him through God's eyes, and I see someone who Jesus Christ has died for, to pave a way for him to be reconciled. And we need to do the same. As we look at people who are hard to love, we need to say, God, I don't want to see them through my perspective. I want to reconsider who they are in your eyes. And I want to recognize that you made them. They're your handiwork. You made them in your image. I mean, granted, they're far from your image now. They've marred your image, but there's hope of redemption. Christ has died for them, and you are longing to have a celebration of reconciliation. When we begin to see people as the Lord sees them, oh my. Here, this will help too at this point. God's spirit is in us, so we can say, Lord, your spirit is in me. Help me see what you see. Help me feel what you feel. Help me do what you would do, and help me say what you would say. Give me your heart, and the, boy, that's a powerful step. You start asking, Lord, I want to reconsider who they are from your perspective by your Spirit. Enable me to be a chip off the old block, doing things like you do, <laughs> Father. And man, that can yield beautiful results. So, first one, receive God's love. Second, reconsider who they are, and then relate to who they are. Remember this point? The brother, when he first talked about his younger brother, he said, that son of yours, trying to distance himself. We tend to distance ourselves from those we don't want to love. But the father says, this brother of yours, the father's trying to reconnect him. Folks, when, when you see people who are really sinful, really messed up, really undeserving of love, do you distance yourself from them and say, I am so unlike them? Or do you say, their life, there go I, but for the grace of God. Their story is my story, except for Jesus. I, too, am a messed up sinner deserving of hell, but Christ has come and forgiven me and washed me of my sin, and he's starting to sanctify me, and it's all him! Him! It's all him. Their story's my story. That's that's my life apart from Jesus. You know, that compassionate identification will trigger a heart of love that is so powerful. So when you see really messed up people, don't put up your nose, so disgusting. Say, yeah, that's what my life would be if not for Jesus. And so the three points that are so helpful. First, be a receiver of God's unmerited love for you. Second, reconsider who they are in God's eyes and how much he loves them. Maybe that'll rub off. And something, relate to them. Say, you know, I'm just like them, but for the grace of Christ. And this path can lead to a change. And I want to change. I want want to be an agent of God's love. And this, this world is dying for the love of God. And I want to be a distributor of this type of miraculous, otherworldly love. I want to be known for loving everybody, not just those who are easy to love more than that. That's not remarkable. That's normal. I want to be known for loving those who are difficult to love. And I think you do too. Hey, let me give you one more story. A more Christy story. After serving with me for a number of years in the student ministry, she said, Jeff, God's calling me to my next adventure. And I'm like, oh boy, well, what's this? She says, you know how I want to be like Jesus and love those who are hard to love. I'm like, yeah. She goes, I, I've been reading about a group who meet the bill. I'm like, yeah, where, where is that? He goes, she said, I want to go to Amsterdam, and I want to love on the prostitutes in the red light district. Prostitution is legal in Amsterdam, and they have a flourishing business there and a street, streets, where it's just storefronts with glass windows, but rather than product, women are in the windows displaying their bodies for sale. Now, Jen and I went to Amsterdam to visit our friend Christy, and she was explaining to us what she does. She brought us right to the edge of the red light district And she goes, Come on. And I'm like, I think this is fair enough. She's like, All right. I go, Why don't you tell me what you do? And she says, Well, every day I bring a thermos of tea, hot tea, and a basket of cookies. And I come up to the windows and I hold them out. And often they invite me in. I go, You go into the window. She goes, Yeah. I go into the window and I sit down and we have tea and we eat the cookies together, and I hear their story, and I try to encourage them. I laugh with them. I love them, and they are starving for real love, Jeff, and some of my best friends are prostitutes in the Red light District. I'm like, oh my goodness, this is unbelievable. I think it could be said of Christy, she welcomed sinners and ate with them, like her Lord. Will they say that about you at your funeral? You say, maybe, not yet. Well, here's the good news, we're not done. Let's press in and say, Jesus, I want to reflect your heart so bad. Christians sometimes are viewed too often as judgmental, the very lack of unconditional love. And I want to be a contributor to writing the reputation of your kingdom in this community. Give me a vision and give me the passion and give me the grace to be a chip off the old block, to be like you. And may we, may the Compass Church at the 95th Street Campus, all of our campuses, may we increasingly become a people who are empowered by God to not only receive grace, but just lavish grace on the world around us. Our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our church fellow members, whoever we come in contact with, to operate in the supernatural realm of undeserved merit, of God's love flowing through us to them. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this story. Man, man. I needed it, Lord. I will just tell you this grace is a concept that I can't get enough of. And I long to better understand and better embody your grace. And, Lord, we long as a church to be the Compass Church to be a church of grace. Would you move in all of us, do a work in all of us that brings a smile to your face and makes your reputation beautiful in our communities.